<laughs> okay, don't start my clock just yet. A few uh, introductory items. Uh, one, thank you for praying for Jennifer and I as we were in uh, Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, and I think spoke four times, uh, an hour each time by request. Not, not because I am verbose, so it fit my our personality very well. Uh, at a marriage retreat at Bedrock uh, Church. And so what a privilege it was to be with them. Appreciate you guys praying for us. Uh, so we covered a lot of ground over a short period of time. And we're tired, but energized also uh, at the work God is doing. Uh, secondly, uh, next week is First Sunday. Um, you guys know what happens on First Sunday downstairs, 930 uh, in room 110. Uh, we're going to take the questions that you asked from the... Uh, Genesis fifty twenty that we didn't get to in the service, and we're going to address them, Keith and I, together downstairs next Sunday. We're also going to record that. That's no excuse for you not to come, but you should come. So we're going to re- record it and try to make it available to you as well uh, and get to the questions you asked that we didn't get to up here. Also, next Sunday, uh, we're going to team, like we did on Genesis fifty twenty, uh, the story uh, in Genesis 38 of Judah and Tamar. And so uh, that's going to be exciting. I'm pumped up about that. And so I just want to say this to you. Uh, that's strategically placed because first through fifth grade will not be in service next week. They'll be in radical kids. And if for any reason you want to bring your kids into the service next week, I would suggest you take them to radical kids. We're going to be very clear, but we're also going to be very careful because that passage is an uncomfortable passage and the right kind of ears need to hear it. And that's all I'll say. So parents, go read the passage and put your kids in radical kids next week. Okay? <laughs> Again, we're going to be very careful. We're going to... I'm going to be very careful, all right? I'm, I'm being serious about that. That's really important, okay? Because it's an uncomfortable passage, and so just the right ears need to hear it, okay? So I just want you to know, okay? Um, all right. Now you can start the clock. Here we go. Um, Gulzar was supposed to be here today, um, and we told you Gulzar would be here, but uh, as it happens, uh, getting a visa from the United States government um, for Gulzar has been a booger. And see, he is still in India. And so Gulzar is not able to be with us. So rather than move next Sunday's sermon back into this slot with first and through fifth graders and that kind of stuff, we just decided to do something a little different today. So what we're going to do is rather than address Genesis 38, we're going to stop and pause and and give you what I'm titling uh, Biblical Theology, colon, a primer. So what I want to do in our next few, few moments together is do a quick study on the discipline of biblical theology. Now, why are we going to do that? Number one, because we're studying through Old Testament narrative passages. And Pastor Justin last week did an absolutely excellent job of taking the narrative of the rest of Joseph's introduction story and pointing us to Jesus. And so just if I could hold up and say model of how to do it, there it is, right there. So if you heard that last week, you know what I'm talking about. If you didn't, go back and listen to the podcast. It will be well worth your time. But what we want to equip you to do as you yourself are reading through the book of Genesis and you're reading your Bible reading plan and you're reading through Old Testament narrative passages, we want to give you tools to equip you to read them well. And so what we're going to do this morning is do a quick primer and help you to understand not just what the text is saying, but how to study it for yourselves. I recognize our first through fifth graders are in here. If you're first through fifth grade, raise your hand. Let me see where you are. Awesome. There you are. I love it. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to share with you some cool stuff that uh, you're, you're able to do. And I would say you're probably better able to do it than your parents. And here's why. Because you still dwell in love and enjoy stories. 
And because you're still there, this is going to make more sense to you than some of us old heads who've gone on to think that stories are not that important. But at the same time, we still like a good movie and a good story. And so what I want to help us to do is understand that God is writing a story in history. And that story is the story of the gospel. And he records it for us in the Bible. And so what we need are some tools to see that story and unpack it for what it is. All right? So here we go. Biblical theology. What about it? And by the way, these notes are available for you on the blog, MitchJolly.com. You can go and see exactly what I have in front of me. I put it there for you in your Radical Life groups and in your other gatherings together to help you unpack this after we do it this morning. So biblical theology. Here's what it does. It helps us. To rightly interpret the Bible. It protects the church from false Christianity. It's the nuclear reaction of a gospel-centered exposition of Scripture. And it is the foundation of correct Christian engagement in the world. And you hear me say this a lot, first through fifth graders. It's in the manual. And it's in the scriptures to teach us through a biblical theological lens how to properly engage our world. So what exactly is biblical theology? Now we're going to get to a passage. We're going to look at Luke 24. We're going to look at John 5. And then we're going to look at Judges 13 to 16. Okay, so we're going to... So go ahead and get your Bibles. Go ahead and prop them open to Luke 24. We're about to to get into some text and see some important things. So what is biblical theology? Biblical theology is the discipline... Of learning how to read the Bible. Okay? Biblical theology is a discipline of learning how to read the Bible. If you're first through fifth grade, can you repeat that back? I'm going to say it and then see if you can say it. Okay? You can, you can talk out loud in church. Totally cool. Okay? Biblical theology is the discipline of learning how to read the Bible. Can you say it? Yeah. I think I heard some of it. Good. I'm, I'm mostly not able to hear anyway, so but I heard murmuring, and I'm trusting you got it. Biblical theology is the discipline of learning how to read the Bible. The Bible is one story. It's one story. It's not many stories. It's one story. 39 Old Testament books plus 27 New Testament books equals 66 books. But I think it's a little easier to refer to them as chapters. 66 chapters in one gigantic story that defines what is true. Okay? It's 66 chapters making up one divine story that defines for us what truth is. It has one divine author. Can you guess who he is? Who is it? Jesus. That's right. God is the author of the story. And he used many writers to get that story out to us. You might say, God is the author and he has many scribes who wrote it down for him. And that story culminates, it apexes, it crescendos, it it comes to its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that every Part of scripture is understood in relation to Jesus. If you don't have this book on your shelf, you need to go get it. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Adults, that's for you. 
We often think maybe that is for children. And I say, no, it's for adults first. Sally Lloyd-Jones says it like this. Every story whispers his name. And she will help you to see all of these beautiful chapters in the large story. And how they arc us over, point us to Jesus, his person, and his work. Now Jesus himself taught us this. It's not like we have to make this up. Jesus himself taught us this discipline. So if you got your Bible, Luke chapter 24. If you don't, no worries. I'm going to read it for you. Uh, Luke chapter 24. Really beginning in verse 26 to 27. Now Jesus has been raised from the dead and before his ascension to the Father where he's going to send the Holy Spirit to be our counselor, our guide to truth and the reminder of everything he's taught us. Jesus is walking along this road with two disciples. And they are lamenting the fact that their hopes appear to have been dashed. Jesus comes along beside them and after rising from the dead, he meets them on this road to this particular city called Emmaus. And Jesus offered them a quick primer in biblical theology. Here's what he says in verse 26. I want you to pay attention to what he says. This is really important. When you're reading your Bible, tune into these things. I'm going to have some application points, but tune into these things. Was it not necessary that the Christ, now he's speaking about himself, right? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There's so many things to say here. And and it's not the body of the sermon, but I can't help myself. Notice how Jesus referred to Moses and the prophets as the scriptures. Meaning, Genesis to Malachi is also Bible. It's God's word. And most importantly, Jesus taught them how to see and read those chapters in the great story as pointing to him. I would have loved to have had that PhD course with the master himself. Luke 24 Same chapter, he goes on after they reach their destination and he disappears and vanishes from their sight after they break the bread together. Boy, there's stuff there too. So they had the meal, they had the supper and their eyes were open and they saw Jesus in the bread, the elements. They saw him there in that moment and they understood and he disappeared from their sight. And in the narrative, in the grand story, we see Jesus show up here with the disciples as they're gathered fearfully. And here's what he says in verse 44 to 47 of the same chapter. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything written. Meaning, it was written about him. And it had to be fulfilled. And he told them beforehand it had to be fulfilled. Verse 45. Check this out. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
apparently in a way he has not done in the past. He supernaturally does this work where he now opens their minds to understand. I would say we could probably jump forward and see that at the reception of the Holy Spirit. Going forward and now upon repentance and faith and reception of the Holy Spirit at conversion. We now have open minds and open hearts and redeemed wills to see and understand the scriptures. You have the same teacher I have. He's called the Holy Spirit. Verse 46. And he said to them. Thus it is written in the scriptures. That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. You hear that? Jesus said the scriptures. The law of Moses. The prophets and the Psalms. These things were written. Right? Isn't that crazy? Right? That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus just summarized, guys, the entire content of the Old Testament. Now, first through fifth graders, don't miss that. So that when you're reading your Bible and you read about David and Goliath. And you read that great story. It's not about overcoming your fear. It's about Jesus suffering, death, burial, and resurrection, and the repentance and forgiveness of sins be preached in His name to all nations. That's what it's intended to point you to in all the beautiful details of the story. It's there to show you Jesus and your place in that story. And check this out, even cooler, you're not divorced from the story, you're living in it right now. You're in it. Like You're in the story You are an actor today. You're a Hollywood movie star. And you're going to inherit the earth. You're not getting paid now. But one day you will be paid like Captain America. Isn't that awesome? You're in the story. Jesus is writing the end story now and you're in it. And so when you're reading these glorious Chapters in the grand story of this gospel work that the Bible is testifying to. Recognize your part is not insignificant, but you're in it right now. And you have a mission in front of you. What a glorious reality this is. So what is Jesus referring to here in verse 44 particularly that has to be fulfilled? Well, he's particularly referencing the Old Testament. That God gave us His Word, and He promised to do something about it. Therefore, when Jesus came, His intent was on fulfilling the Word of the Lord. Which is why when you'll read through the Gospels, you'll hear them often say, you'll hear them often say, thus it was, thus it was written, and thus He fulfilled. Or this was done to fulfill what was written in the prophets. So Jesus is making a point to make sure His Word is fulfilled. He names three parts to what the Old Testament is divided into. The Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. All right, first through fifth grade. You want to learn some Hebrew? All right, here you go. Ready? Torah. Say Torah. Nabi. Ketubim. That is the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. If you look at a Hebrew Bible... On the front, and it's backwards. Hebrew is backwards from our language, so it reads the other way. Really strange. And you will see written in really funny letters right here, those three titles. Torah, Nabi, and Ketubim. Torah, Law, Nabi, Prophets, Ketubim, the Writings, or the Psalms. And their other category under, but anyway, that's, that's for later. When you're older. But Jesus said that these three categories, which makes up the entire Old Testament, had to be fulfilled. Meaning, 
All of the Old Testament is preaching to us Jesus Christ and his person and his work. And he does this crazy thing in verse 45. We've already mentioned he opens their minds to receive. And he begins to tell them the gospel story. We take the elements on Sunday morning. The elements are a reminder and a picture and a symbol of this gospel story. The bread, the body of Jesus Christ broken, crucified in our place for our sin. The cup, the blood spilled on our behalf to pay for our sin are the symbols and the elements to point us to this story. They're there to remind us and take us back into the narrative so we don't forget it. Because here's what happens. In this life and in this world, there are so many things that vie for your attention. They're coming at you. And they're trying to get your attention. They take your eyes off the story. And you get over here and you start thinking, this is the story. Oh, this is the story. Wow, it's blue and clear and wet. Oh, hmm. Wow, it quenched my thirst. And, and, and what the enemy wants to do is get us to thinking this is the story. And what Jesus is doing is saying, no, 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 no. Come, come, come back right here, right here. This, this, this is the story. This is the history. This is the narrative right here. Use this, but don't look at this. This isn't the point. This is a tool to get you to the point. This is not the point, right? And so there are a hundred things trying to pull your mind away from this. Jesus is saying, no, 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 come back right here. These elements are intended to point us to the story. And so when we gather on Sundays, recognize this is a tool to take you to Jesus. Not to increase your learning, not to give you more information, but to take you back to the story. Because tomorrow there are going to be a lot of little things like this. Go, whoa, this is the story. And we're going to get mesmerized. And we're going to get fixated on. We're going to get enchanted. Right? In in Narnia, right? It's the enchantment of the white witch. It's being under her spell. Turkish delight. It's my favorite thing. Mm, Wow. It's all about Turkish delight. Missing the fact that it's about Aslan. These reminders, the word, the elements, the songs are intended to take us. No, no, no. Here is the point. And Jesus is pointing this out to them so that they can see and not forget. The amazing thing in verse 46 is the Lord tells us this is written in the text for us so we can't forget it. And you go to John 5, 39. So if you, got, you can flip over. That's Luke. So it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. And uh, just a few pages over. If you're in my Bible, it's one, two... Three, four, like pages over. John 5, chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus says this amazing thing, and we referenced this a few weeks back. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So first through fifth graders. Genesis, all the way to Malachi, witness to Jesus. And that's your task when you're reading the stories, when you're reading these chapters in the grand story of the gospel, to see how God so wove them together. And check this out. Think how powerful he is. That he wove together history. Like this happened. This happened. This is real. And he wove it together to point to Jesus. How powerful is our God? Right? 
And so Jesus said, these scriptures bear witness about me. Now, I want to give you, I want to give you a caution here, okay? Be careful. This doesn't mean that we carelessly impose Jesus on top of every text. This isn't a careless imposition of Jesus on top of every text. It means we pay close attention to each text on its own terms, but then how every text falls into one of the countless sub-themes of the gospel. And then we begin tracing those sub-themes out until they lead us to the story. And I know that's like, uh, I'm still concrete. I'm a concrete thinker. I'm not in that abstract world. So let me give you an illustration. Um, does anybody ever paddle your kayak on the Etowah River? Yes, there's a few of us, right? Right? Now, do you understand now that that, that river, that water, do you guys know where it ends up? It, it, it goes to the Coosa, right? It merges the Ustanala, makes the Coosa, flows through Lake Alatuna, I mean uh, Lake Weiss, is let out through the dam in Cedar Bluff, Alabama. And if you've ever driven down on the Alabama Gulf Coast, you may see a river and a bridge crossing it. You know what it is? It's the Coosa River. Believe it or not, the Coosa, yes, the Coosa River, flows in the Gulf of Mexico. Little Etowah River works its way into a larger river that works its way into the ocean. When we read these narrative accounts, they are not the gospel, but they are like the Etowah River that streams along until it gets to something a little clearer. And then it streams along until it opens up for us in the Gulf of Mexico and we go, holy cow. Holy cow. Isn't that wild? Absolutely astounding. And so as we read the story, it's like paddling. And even better, do you know Silver Creek grew up in that creek? Spills into the Etowah. So you could go even further. Some of these, like Judges 19, are like Silver Creek. You're like, whoa, holy cow. And you're trying to navigate Judges 19, and it opens up the Etowah. Whoa, okay. Then the Coosa, whoa. Then the Gulf of Mexico. So we don't carelessly put Jesus down on top of every passage, but we recognize these themes of the gospel, and we trace them through the story until we get to Jesus. In Scripture... The identity and the work of Christ are the absolute crucial pieces of information around which everything else revolves. Now here's the example we're going to use very quickly. Judges 13 to 16. In the book of Judges, we get a great story about the life of Samson. And Samson may be, in my opinion, one of the clearer pictures we get of the gospel and themes that we can trace to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We learned about the life of Samson. I'm going to read all of it because it's like chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. But if you're familiar with the story, you'll recognize it. If not, go back and read it and then look at these notes and practice. You'll discover that Samson's going to tear a lion apart with his bare hands. It's pretty amazing. He's going to kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. He's every young red-blooded boy's hero. And girls are probably looking at him going, gross. Because then later he's going to eat honey out of a lion carcass. Gross. Even grosser. I'm going, that's pretty gross too. So here's a question. Will teaching about Samson killing a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone cause people to be saved? 
Hmm. Interesting question, right? Well, here's the answer. You ready? It depends. It depends. If we preach Samson properly, then yes, preaching Samson can lead people to salvation in Jesus Christ. But rightly preaching judges takes more than praising Samson's manly virtues and courage. Samson's story is not there as a moral lesson for young men to be courageous. Listen, I want to be very careful when I say this. If we use it for that primary purpose, we have misused the text. Here's some things you could do with Samson. You might talk about Samson as a pattern of Christ. Or you might say a type of Christ. And here's what you might say. And you'll find some parallels, some similarities with Jesus. Samson's birth is announced by an angel. Guess whose birth was announced by an angel? Jesus' birth was announced by an angel. Samson is set apart as holy for a holy purpose. Guess who else was set apart from birth for a holy purpose? Jesus. Samson is a God-anointed judge. The Spirit of God is on Samson. Guess who is anointed by the Holy Spirit? Jesus. He's gifted with remarkable power through the Holy Spirit, like being able to kill a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone. Guess who else is remarkably powerful through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as the second person of the Trinity to heal diseases and sicknesses? Jesus. Samson is handed over to God's enemies and the enemies of the people of God for the purpose of rescuing them from those people. See it? Guess who is handed over to the enemies of the people of God to be killed to rescue God's people? Jesus. You might even talk about Samson in my language here as the anti-Jesus. Samson is almost the exact opposite of Jesus in many ways in that he shows us everything Jesus is not. Example, Samson's life is marked by radical disobedience at every single turn. Down in the tiny little details of what he desires and what he goes after for himself and how he delivers himself. Jesus is the exact opposite. And then down in the very details, Jesus' life is marked by radical obedience. So we see in Samson a negative example of who Jesus actually is. You get to the life of Samson's, uh, you get to the end of his life and you go, there's got to be something better. Some Bible scholars refer to people like Samson as being a dead end. You ever been trying to find your way somewhere? And you get to where you think you're going and you realize it ain't it. There are two Cowan roads in Rome, Georgia. We live on one of them. And sometimes people are trying to come to my house. I send them my address and I'll get a text or a phone call. Man, I'm, I, I'm out in Coosa, I'm pretty sure. And it's a dark road and I'm at a barn. And I go, I don't live there. We're in East Rome off Kingston Highway. And they got to this place and realized this is not it. Sometimes these people in the Old Testament like Samson are like that dark Calvin road with a barn where my house should be. You get there and realize I'm not in the right place. Samson, you get to the end of his life and realize this isn't the right place. Who is? Jesus. You might ask, 
what is it that Samson's story teaches about the nature and character of God? Well, we can learn some things about God through the life of Samson. We learn that God is patient with his people and he is absolutely determined to deal with sin. God is so patient with Samson. How many times does Samson flirt with disaster and telling Delilah his secret? And God is just patient with him. And he just gives him chance after chance after chance after chance. But we also learn that the wages of sin really is death. That if we flirt around with sin and we live in sin and we play with sin, it will kill us. Just like it does Samson. Oh, and check this out. It is sin that kills Jesus. Not Jesus' sin. Your sin and my sin. The cost of sin is the death of the Son of God to pay for my guilt and to set me free. So we learn something about the character of God, his patience and his determination to deal with sin. Samson teaches us about our need for a Savior, someone who won't disappoint us like every other judge and king that has lived except one, Jesus. Samson's strength is, is, is striking. Samson's strength stands out. He kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. How much more striking is the return of the eternal Son of God? We get the picture in Revelation 19. He doesn't slay a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, but he comes with a sharp two-edged sword, the Word of God, judging the nations, putting on display for the world to see that he is God and there is no other. And so we see even in the life of Samson the power that Jesus possesses on a limited scale. Samson's death is absolutely striking. He defeats his enemies and rescues God's people through his death. Note the opposite here. It was Samson's folly and pride that led to his death that ends up saving his people. Jesus being sinless... It is his righteousness through his death that saves his people. Samson really can provoke our wonder and awe at the nature and character of God and point us to the gospel. But the wonder and awe is not in Samson. It is in Jesus who he points us to. So in short, if we're going to deal rightly with Samson or any of the judges in the book of Judges. It has to be a gospel sermon. And as I stated a few weeks ago. Not a synagogue talk. Not a moral lesson. But a study. And how God has worked in history. To point us to Jesus. So. Application. What are we going to do with these today? Last week Pastor Justin. In his application. Pointed out three components to application. There are things we need to know. There are things we need to believe, and there are things we need to do. So let's start with some some things here maybe we need to believe when it comes to studying our Bibles to point us to Jesus. Number one, you and I need to really believe that everything written in the Old Testament will lead us to Jesus. We really need to believe that. And if we believe that, we need to be careful about what we take into our mind and our soul That is so readily available to our ears. It is in fact possible to find Christian teaching. That is two to three to five degrees off of center. 
when it comes to dealing with the biblical text and the gospel. It is very easy to turn the Bible into a, um, a moral or ethical handbook alone. And we listen, and it's not that the counsel is unwise or bad. It's just not the point. It's what the Pharisees did to the gospel that Jesus came to correct. Because if we turn the text into a moral guidebook, we in essence make a set of laws that can't ever be questioned. That may not be explicitly in the text. So we can't use it as a mere moral guidebook. That doesn't mean, listen, that doesn't mean that it fails to give us moral lessons or ethical standards. It gives us those things. But it gives them to us underneath the banner of Jesus Christ and His person His work. Because here's the deal. You can have a moral lesson that's upright and good and be true for everybody on the face of the planet. And that's good because God gave us truth. And truth is a restraining factor that keeps the curse from running off with creation. But a moral lesson, if it doesn't take us to Jesus as the end-all, be-all, and the culmination, is off point. Because we, you, me, can be morally upright and lost. So, do we want moral uprightness? Yes. Do we want our moral uprightness grounded in the cross? Yes. Does that make sense? So start believing that everything written in the Old Testament will lead us to Jesus. Number two, we really need to believe that the best Old Testament commentary is the New Testament. The best commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament. Pay attention to how the New Testament quotes and applies the Old Testament. Because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're writing one of the chapters in the grand story of the gospel with the perfect use of the inspired meaning of the text. If somebody had told me that 20 years ago as a young Christian, ah, I have gone back and found notes of dumb things I taught as a young ministry person and cringed at how I have misled people. Not intentionally trying to get them off track, but going, oh man. Oh no. <laughs> Don't do that. You, I, that one sentence would have set me on a course to save myself and other people a lot of pain. Right? So take the lesson now. Take, pay attention to how the New Testament, use the Old Testament. I'll give you a real quick example. We talked about this Thursday morning in, in our in group of guys I meet with here from the church. Um, pay attention, for example, to how Paul uses Psalm 44 in Romans 8. You read Psalm 44? You're like, man, we didn't do anything wrong. We're righteous, upright, we're following the Lord. And stuff's not going our way. You don't go out with us to battle and we're losing. But we're righteous. Like there's no known sin. We've, we're, we're righteous and upright and we're losing. And we're counted like sheep to be led to the slaughter for your purposes, for your good purpose. And Paul comes along and quotes that after Romans eight twenty eight, And all things we know 
that God works together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, for those who he foreknew, right? All this beautiful stuff. And then he says, for we're more in conquerors in Christ. He says that after he quotes Psalm 44. Here it is. Sometimes we learn from the New Testament's use of the Old Testament that bad stuff happens not for judgment and sin, but because God has eternal purposes in that bad stuff shaping us. Just like Jesus' mission was shaped through suffering. Meaning, don't be tempted to think when bad things are happening, God's getting even. Because in Christ, He got even for you. Jesus took my getting even. So that all I'll ever get from the Father is nothing but what Jesus deserved. So that's Paul's point. That's why he's working for our good. Because that's all he can do for us in Christ. That's how using the New Testament's interpretation of the Old Testament would be helpful. Number three... I need you to know, I need you to know, first through fifth graders, look at me. It does not take a special degree or a special ability to learn to read the Bible like Jesus taught us. I find it very fascinating that children love Jesus and they came running to him and he told the disciples, don't you dare take them away from me. And if you make one of them stumble, you'd be better off to have a millstone hung around your neck and drown in the sea. Children love Jesus. And they apparently understood him. And it was us who didn't. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Is it because we didn't bring any bread? Peter, you forgot bread. No, you forgot bread. I didn't forget bread. You forgot bread. And Jesus marveling out there like, Do you be aware of the teaching of the Pharisees, guys? And the kids are going, duh. Not really, that's not in the text. I'm totally making that up. But you get my point. The children don't have a problem with Jesus. It's us. So don't don't think that you need a special degree to read the Bible appropriately. You don't. This is why I say this a lot. I'm going to say it again. You get sick of me saying it, but it's starting to take. Repetition is the key to mastery. Read children's stories. Read the Chronicles. Read Lord of the Rings. Those two authors wrote those things to help you understand and see how story works. Graduate to the Lord of the Rings. Probably don't need to start there, little ones. But adults, don't need to be reading that stuff. It'll help you read your Bible and not turn it into a moral handbook. It'll help you see the gospel all over the place. So children, read the Chronicles of Narnia. Pay attention to how those stories are crafted to help you see the big story of the gospel. You don't need an advanced degree. You just need to be able to read children's books. You can read a children's book. Even C.S. Lewis said that the best story is one for children, not for adults. And I agree. Fourth, we're almost done. Actively, actively. You probably get sick of hearing this. But again, repetition is key to mastery. Actively get on a Bible reading plan and do it in covenant fellowship together. The only way you're going to be able to start seeing these things and seeing how... Silver Creek runs into the Gulf of Mexico. Is to paddle Silver Creek. And buy a map, because I guarantee you I'm going to have trouble getting through the dam on Lake Weiss. And I'm not carrying my kayak around. And frankly, don't want to kayak all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. I'm going to have to look at a Google map. Or I'm going to have to look at an actual physical map and see where the tributary runs. The only way you're going to... To see it is to take a look at it. The only way you're going to see these stories point us to Jesus is to read them over and over and over and over and over again until you know them in your sleep. And so that as you're grinding out your day and that story about the Levite 
and his concubine comes up and you're marveling on it and going, I don't understand. And then the Lord points to a detail and you go, there it is. That will not happen without effort. Is the Lord able? Yeah. Will he? Maybe not. So read it. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. I've hidden it in my heart that I might not sin against you. Right? And so, get on a plan. Stick with that plan. Do it over and over and over again until you get the rhythm of it and you feel it in your bones. Until you know what's coming next a week out because you've been through it for the 24th time. And when you have that map in your soul of God's word, these tributaries start exploring your soul. They begin to read you. You don't read them. And the Lord... Feed you in the text. You need that more than you need water. You need it more than you need air. So first through fifth graders, some of us are too dense to get this, and it may be too late for many of us. It's not too late for you. Hide the word in your heart and let Jesus transform you with it. And then finally, if you haven't believed the gospel... I think in Rome, Georgia, we're full of people like this. I was one of them when I was 20. I had a moral framework. I was a moralistic. This is, sorry, first through fifth graders. I'm going to go nerdy on you. I was a moralistic, therapeutic deist. I knew what was considered right and wrong. Jesus was my means to heal my stuff alone. And he was just out there. That's not the God of the Bible. Jesus is not first and foremost concerned with your ethical framework. He's concerned with whether or not you have a new heart that's been redeemed and brought back from the curse of sin. And his primary goal isn't just to make you well, it's to make you his. He is not far off. He is even near the unsaved. He doesn't doesn't replace their cold, dead heart with a new one yet. He's not distant. He is near. And you'll find him in the scriptures as you follow Silver Creek to the Gulf of Mexico. And your life will never be the same. Let's worship. Lord Jesus, your word is good. And even devastatingly good. I pray today that you will take your word. And you will produce in us this morning. The fruit of the kingdom of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Lord, also ask this morning that for. Any sitting here that was like me 27 years ago, deceived, that the gospel would penetrate that veil of darkness, that the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom would absolutely penetrate that darkness and cause us to see and savor Jesus Christ.
Father, I ask now that if you know the hearts of all those sitting here, there's one that is absolutely away from you and does not know you, that you would wreck them with Jesus Christ. Absolutely wreck them with the gospel. Ask you for those who are in the faith that you would not let us be okay with mediocrity, but excellence in the pursuit of Christ. And this morning as we worship, be exalted, be lifted high. Be adored by us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name.